welcome to the London First Baptist Church podcast. This is the Sunday morning service of February 18th, 2024, from Pastor Brett Cottrell. You guys have probably heard this phrase or some variation of it through the years. There's songs called Born to Be Wild. Did you all heard that one? Yeah, we didn't do that this morning. But you kind of feel it boring to whatever. Uh, some of you may have heard the song Born to Run. I think Bruce Springsteen is one for that. That song has this idea, <coughs> excuse me, of a, uh, thank you. I promise you, I sound worse than I actually am. But that song has the idea of being born to just get out of town, you know, just to leave, to, to move on. It has, it has that young, young adventure side to it. We may fill in the phrase born to with whatever. All kinds of t-shirts with various iterations of that. When we come to our passage this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to find that Peter has his own version of this. It's not born to run. It's not born to die. It's not born to be wild. In fact, it is born to love. 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to begin to read this morning in verse 22 as we've been working our way through this chapter. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all the glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Heavenly Father, we come to your word, your eternal word, this morning. Lord, I pray that you would overcome our, our sometimes unlistening hearts, that you would overcome uh, the, uh, my own brokenness and frailty this morning, that, Lord, that your word and its eternal power today would pierce our hearts and reveal to us the eternal, powerful salvation you have given us through Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears> through <throat> the years, we have seen people, our own nation's history attest to this, people have immigrated and moved from one part of the world to another. And oftentimes they work hard to maintain their cultural and unique identities from wherever they come from. Uh, when I was a summer missionary in Australia back in 1989, and while I was still in college, I know that was a long time ago, um, I had kind of my first real first-hand uh, encounter with something like this. That there was a lady in the church plant I was working with there in, in Melbourne, Australia, and she was from Hong Kong, had married a guy who was from Scotland, there was some unique accents in that house, and she wanted to take... Uh, Take us, take us to 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 get some real authentic Chinese food. Now, at that point in my life, I'd really never had Chinese food, and so we come to an area of, of Melbourne called Chinatown. In fact, one of those things at the time, anyway, Melbourne, Australia, was home to the third largest Chinatown section behind New York and San Francisco in the world. And it was like you you walked past this city block. And all of a sudden, every sign was in Chinese. 
favorite restaurant was Chinese. And also I realized that once I got about walked to into this thing, I wasn't getting out of here unless I spoke Chinese or I had somebody who was Chinese with me. I ate some stuff that day. I still don't know for sure what it all was. I know some of it was squid because you can see the tentacles. And, well, it makes it interesting. People have often tried to maintain when they moved and immigrated from one part of the world to another their unique food, their unique identity by finding people like them and gathering with them. The truth is, even this morning, as you and I gather together as Christians, we're doing some of the same thing today. We're gathering with those that we know are from our people. We're finding people like us who belong to the kingdom of God, and we're gathering together, and we're acknowledging that, and we're celebrating that, and we are worshiping the God who's brought us together. And in the book of 1 Peter, excuse me, Peter has acknowledged in the opening verses of this book, this letter, that the ones to whom he is writing are in the exact same boat. In fact, he even calls them in the first couple of verses of this book foreigners. He calls them outsiders. And says, as such, as those who are outside of this world, who are most and first and foremost members of the kingdom of God, there are some things that I want you to know. And he has been, over the first chapter, we have been looking at some things he has given us about how to live as foreigners in this world, as those who belong to the kingdom of God. We saw three commands over the last several weeks. He said there in verse 12, or verse 13, that we should be a people whose hope is completely set on the return of Christ. He's told us in verse 15 that we are to be holy like our Heavenly Father is holy. We're to be like Him. He's told us to live in fear and in awe of our Heavenly Father. He's slightly changed topics this morning, but he still is going to give us something that should mark us as a unique people living in this world. And he says this, since or because you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls, fervently love, that's our command this morning, to fervently love one another. But he begins by describing us as those who are living in obedience to truth. What does he mean by that? There's a couple different aspects to that. First of all, he has earlier in this chapter already talked about what it means to be a holy people. Now, what do you and I call the process of becoming holy? There's a good church word for that. Sanctification. Yeah. Now, sanctification is a hard word to go from a stick. It's kind of a long word, a lot of syllables. It just describes the process by which God makes us like him. And if you are this morning a believer in Christ, God has already told you that one of his main purposes for you throughout the course of your human existence on this planet is to make you like Christ, to make you holy. And so God will bring things into your life. Sometimes they're very difficult things. In fact, often they're very difficult things. And he will give you challenges and he will give you obstacles, and he will give you difficulty so that he can make you like Christ. So we have seen that. And Paul or Peter's talking to this morning to a certain degree that as we go through this process of being obedient to the truth, being made holy, 
the one aspect of that is that we will love one another. As a result, and the goal, at least one goal of our being made like Christ, is that we will love like Christ. Now that's a pretty lofty goal, isn't it? When we look at how Christ has loved us, when we look at the example he has set, to say that is my model. That's an ambitious model, is it not? To say, I need to love like Christ. And yet, that's exactly what God is doing in our lives. One of the goals he has for you and me this morning is that as we walk with God day in and day out, whether we are a student, whether we work in a factory, whether we work in an office, whether we're at home, whether we're out with our neighbors, whether we're watching football, or whether we're shopping, that God will use the circumstances we find ourselves in, and he will bring things into our lives to not only make us holy in this way, that we learn to love those around us the way that God has loved us. And in particular, he's talking this morning about a love we have for one another. Now, I'll get back to that in a moment, but this is one of the goals of our sanctification. Our lives is that God will develop within us a love for each other. Now, let's be honest. There are people that you know, maybe some of them are in this room, that are hard to love. Now, you don't want to admit that, but it's true. And one of the things God might just do is he might bring people into your life who are really, really hard to love so that you will learn to love them anyway, just like Christ has loved you. That's part of our sanctification. But there is, in fact, another aspect to this. <clears throat> that obedience to truth is also a phrase that's used occasionally throughout the New Testament to refer to our obedience to the gospel. In other words, obedience to the gospel, obedience to truth, is that moment that I hear the work of what God has done through Christ. I hear of Christ's perfect life. I hear of his death that was a substitute for mine. I hear of his resurrection. I hear of his payment for my sins. And I respond by repenting of my sins and trusting Christ with my life. That's also obedience to the truth. It's obedience to the gospel. And so not only is obedience to the truth referring to my sanctification, it's actually referring to my salvation. It's referring to that time when I became a follower of Christ. And one reason I think this is true he says, since you have an obedience to truth purifies your souls, that is a past tense looking back at a moment in time event. <clears throat> He's saying there's a moment your life was purified. Now, we've all had perhaps those moments that you experience and you go through that changes everything that comes after that. Have you ever had one of those moments that when you went through that moment, nothing else ever was quite the same? Now, maybe that was a good thing. Maybe it was a hard thing. I was this week even trying to think of examples, and there's probably a few, but the, the truth is the easiest example I would think of in my own life was my marriage to Angela. Those few moments in that wedding or in, in that wedding at that church when we said, I do, nothing's quite the same after that, is it? In a good way. This is referring to a moment, Peter's referring to a moment, when everything afterwards changed. You were purified. I believe this is referring also to the moment of salvation. So what Peter is doing for us this morning is he's painting this picture of someone who has heard the gospel, 
being obedient to it by repenting and giving their faith on Christ and then allowing the work of God to then make them holy. Once that process is started, nothing else is ever the same. It changes everything. And this is done in part, he says this, since, you have, since this has happened, since you've been obedient, since you have been purified, you've been, these things have happened for, that is for this purpose, to accomplish this, that you would have a sincere love of the brethren. Now guess who the, guess who the brethren is? Look around. It's other believers. Now, are we, you and I, called to love everybody? Yes. But there is a very special love relationship that God's people have with one another that God sets up to be as a unique relationship. And you go all the way back to the Gospel of John. As the Lord Christ is talking to the disciples the night before his crucifixion. And a couple of different times he says things like this. The world will know you're my disciples by what? Your love for one another. He sets up their love of one another as followers of Christ in a unique way that that will be the sign, their ability to love one another will be the sign to the rest of the world that they are in fact disciples of Christ. So, from the very beginning of Christ, uh, for his crucifixion, even to today, the world has the right to say to us, I'll believe you're a follower of Christ when I see your love for other Christians. And by the same token, if we as Christians can't love one another, if we as Christians cannot treat each other the way Christ has treated us, it would seem to imply the opposite, wouldn't it? that we might have reason to doubt our salvation if we can't love one another. It's a hallmark of what a Christian is supposed to be. This love for one another. In fact, it's one of the purposes for which God has saved us. By the way, Christ also said on that night before his crucifixion that it would be our unity as a people. He prayed for our unity in John chapter 17 that we would be one with one another as he and the Father and the Spirit were one. In other words, Jesus Christ used the Trinity and the unity of the Trinity as a model for Christian unity. And he even goes so far as to say that that unity will be evidence to the world that Christ is the Messiah. So get this, two things that Jesus has said in, in the latter chapters of, of John before his crucifixion. One, that our love for one another will give proof that we are actually His. And two, that our unity will give evidence to the world that Christ is who He said He is. Christ has, in fact, put His reputation on the line by our ability to be unified with one another. This is a big deal. And so Peter says here, and of course Peter was present that night, he says that you have been purified You've been saved, you're being sanctified for this purpose, a sincere love of the brethren. Is that word sincere? It means exactly what you mean, think it means. It means true. It means not hypocritical. It means not pretending. To have a sincere love of one another. To be without hypocrisy. 
to not be acting, to actually love one another. And he says this is supposed to be a, <clears throat> a fervent love. <clears throat> that word, fervent, <clears throat> excuse me, has the, 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 the context of that, or the, the meaning of that word, has the idea of a love that's been stretched thin. You ever feel stretched thin in life? Is that always a pleasant experience? Because we, 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 we think about being stretched thin. I, I can't take it anymore, right? It's hard. Everything I am is being pulled. I don't have any depth in my life. I'm, I'm worn out. I'm stretched thin. That fervent love, it's a stretched out love. Now, let's, let's follow me here. What, what, what might that mean if we're to love someone to the point that we're stretched thin? Well, I see over here, somebody's, somebody's already following me here. The first place I would go to love stretched thin is the love that Christ had for me, wouldn't it? Now, there's the visual of the cross. <clears throat> but a love that stretches us to our, our breaking point. You and I are to have a love for one another that's willing to be stretched thin. That means <clears throat> some of you I got to love. And it's going to be hard. <laughs> and that's all right, because some of you got to love me. To love me is going to be kind of hard too sometimes. But it's our ability <clears throat> to love one another, even with, maybe even especially when it's hard, that gives the world a clue as to what God has done for them. You see, one of the things that happens in a church that loves one another is the world sees a living demonstration of the gospel. What did Christ do for us? He gave up for a time his place in heaven. He left the trappings of the throne of heaven. We sang about those this morning. He left the beauty of that, of that place. He left the majesty, the holiness of that place to come to earth to love people who would kill him who would turn their backs on him, who would curse him. And I'm not talking about simply the people who were actually holding the nails 2,000 years ago. I'm talking about us today. He came to do that. He didn't wait for us to say we're sorry. He came first. He didn't wait for us to earn it. He came first. He came when it was hard, and he stretched thin, and he loved us. He forgave us. And Peter is saying to us, if we're going to be like the one who has saved us, we are to love one another in the same way. In fact, it's even one of the points of our salvation. It's one of the purposes of our sanctification to love like that. <clears throat> there is, um, my, my seminary degree is not actually in uh, theology. It's not even in church ministry. My, my seminary degree is actually in missions. Because at one point I really felt that's what I was going to do was go into the, on the international mission field. But uh, I, I took some classes on ministry and church planting in particular. And, and they would tell us in the church planting classes in seminary, and even in classes and even conferences I've attended since, that one of the keys to church planting is what they call in their very you know, official sounding terms, the homogenous principle. All that means is this, birds of a feather flock together. Have you all heard that phrase? It means 
that if you want to start and be successful in church planting, you find a certain type of person and you just get those type of people all, all together. Find people that all look alike, that all talk alike, that have the same culture, that have the same uh, economics, whatever it might be. Find people that all look alike, talk alike, think alike, and, and focus on them and bring them all together and you have, that's how you grow a church. Get people that look alike. <clears throat> now, from a business point of view, from a marketing point of view, from a business point of view, that may make a lot of sense. But here's the thing. From a New Testament point of view, it's unbiblical. In fact, the Scripture teaches the exact opposite. That as a people of God, <clears throat> if we can come together and love one another, despite the fact we talk different, look different, come from different backgrounds, come from different economic backgrounds, all the things that in this world divide us. If we can be a people who love one another, even when we're markedly different from one another, that, that is the miracle of the gospel. Now, we may look at the Scripture and think to ourselves, well, when does that happen there? Well, we underestimate it sometimes. We've talked about this. We went through Acts a couple years ago as a church, and we talked about the whole Jew and Gentile thing. Now, we, we don't deal with the Jew-Gentile issue today, but I want you to understand that in that day, in the first century, the Jew-Gentile issue was more pronounced perhaps even than the racial issues in our own country today. It was that big a deal. Those groups didn't hang out with one another. Jews and Samaritans didn't hang out with one another. And even inside the disciple group themselves, those 12 men, <clears throat> we, we sometimes look past this, we don't think about it. And yes, they're all Jews, they all look alike to a certain degree, but their politics are massively different. Matthew is a tax collector. Now, wrote the first gospel that we have there. And the tax collectors were seen by the Jewish people of that day as sellouts, as traitors. They were collaborators with the Roman government. They were collaborators with those who had invaded. Tax collectors were seen as traitors. They were hated. Remember Zacchaeus. Now, you also have a guy and the disciples named Simon the Zealot. You know what a zealot was? Today we would call him a terrorist. They were a, they were a small group of people in Israel dedicated to killing as many Romans as they could. In whatever way they, they, they were known for carrying knives, stabbing guys in the back who were Romans, and hunting down Jewish collaborators. You have a, in the disciple group, you have a guy who was a traitor and a guy who kills traitors for a living. That's the polar opposite of, of, of politics in that day and age. You've got fishermen. You've got the whole spectrum in that small group of men. Later on, you'll have somebody like Paul, who was himself a Pharisee, who killed Christians, or tried to anyway. And then, of course, you have the Jew-Gentile. In other words, all this to be said, in fact, I'll, I'll just put one more thing. If you go to the book of Acts and you see the first early conflict that happens in Acts chapter 7, there's a conflict among the native Jewish Christians and the exiled Jewish Christians, the Jews that lived elsewhere that were coming into Jerusalem. There's a conflict between the two of them. 
some very first deacons are assigned to the process to help get all that sorted out. And if you look through their names and where they're from, you see that some of them are from Africa. I think they're black deacons of the first church. The miracle of God's people is that they love one another, not because they're alike, but in fact for the very opposite. And Peter even says, this is kind of the point that the people of God are a unique, only exist in this way type of thing that the rest of the world will look at and go, those people shouldn't be hanging out together, and yet they love one another. That's bizarre. And it's a demonstration of the lived-out gospel. Part of what it means to be a gospel church is to not just be evangelizing, not just to be sending out missionaries, which we're doing. It is to live a daily life with his people, loving one another like this. Stretched thin even. Now, how can we do this? Because this does not come naturally to most folks. He says this, For because, you can do this, because you have been born again, not of the seed which is perishable, but imperishable. Peter has said this a couple of times. Verse 4 of chapter 1, he's talking about our inheritance. You and I, what we inherit from God being imperishable, not perishable. In verse 7, he talked about our faith being um, found to be imperishable and not perishable. Verses 18 and 19, he says, we weren't redeemed with perishable things. We were redeemed with the imperishable blood of Christ. Peter likes this particular phrase. And he tells us that you and I have been born of something that is imperishable, can't die. That you and I, Jesus uses the words born again in John chapter 4. But that you and I as Christians, when we come to Christ and the Spirit of God comes within us, we are born again. And that new life within us, that seed of the Father, if you will, is an eternal life. It's not like the life we have here. You and I, if we are genuine Christians, we are now in possession of something. In fact, we are something that we weren't before. Paul talks us in 2 Corinthians about we are a new creation. You and I, as followers of Christ, who have come to Him in faith, if that's true of us, we are now new creatures. We are now eternal creatures. We have been sown, we have been planted, we have been made with the foundation of, of imperishable DNA, if you will. And because of that, because we are no longer like everyone else, I want you to know you're much more unlike the people of this world than you think you are. If you are a Christian this morning, you really are compared to the rest of the world, an odd duck. That's us. You and I are walking oddities. We're not supposed to fit in. We're different. We are imperishable, born of the Word. Now, what's he talking about being born of the Word? He actually quotes something from Isaiah here. This, this passage here, verse 24, it's Isaiah 40. And even, even the song we sang, Behold Our God, this morning, has its roots in Isaiah 40. It's, I'll say this, it's perhaps my, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. And he's letting us know that what we know, that the Word of God, the activity of God, what God has made Himself, how He's revealed Himself to us, this Word of God is also imperishable. The roots of what we believe is imperishable. It will last. He goes, this, this quote, all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. It withers and falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. 
what we have our lives based on, that new life we possess, is different. Everything else we value, everything else we pursue in this life is temporary. Everything is temporary. And so God, Peter, through Peter, makes this, this claim that the Word of God itself is permanent. The work of God is permanent. It's eternal. And when everything else you know falls away, this will be there. So you have a choice this morning. Will you chase that which is temporary or will you chase that that's eternal? That can't be taken away. And one idea that we can often see in this world, you see it in poetry, see it in music, you even see it in ads for beer, movies and books. The Latin phrase is carpe diem. Y'all know what that, word, y'all know what that phrase means? Seize the day. Live life to the fullest. Grab the gusto. All those things. Because you don't know if you got tomorrow, so live it all out today. Now, I get that. There there is an element of truth in that. Don't don't forget to tell the people you're around them you love them. all, All those things are good. However, While we may not know how long we have on this earth in a temporary fashion, if we are indeed of Christ, we don't have just another day. We have eternity. Now, I say that not to give you permission to procrastinate. <laughs> don't, don't take it that way. You, you have eternity. That doesn't mean you can put off what you need to put off. Okay, don't, don't do that. That's, that's not the point. But the point is this. If I'm eternal in nature, if I have a permanence, I can love stretch thin with confidence. If I know that I am eternal in nature, if I know that my life is permanent because of what Christ has done for me, I can love even when it's hard, even when it's dangerous because I do have tomorrow. Because I am, um, I am of imperishable seed. I don't have to worry about missing out. There's fear of missing out, right? Y'all know what that is, right? FOMO. I saw an interesting thing this week. Actually, I've seen it before, but most of you perhaps, especially those of you older, will know that the, the birth rate in our country has been falling for, for decades. And in the current under 30, 35 generation, the birth rate has really plummeted. People are just having fewer kids on a national scale. They've done some work in polling trying to figure out why this is the case. And there are a number of factors. But, and it's really not that close, the, the biggest factor given by younger people about why they aren't having kids is this. I'll miss out on the stuff I want to do. It'll be inconvenient to have kids. Let me tell you what, it is. <laughs> have any parents found, is having kids sometimes inconvenient? Yes. Are there things as parents you won't get to do because you have kids? Yes. Absolutely true. Are there sometimes being a parent stretches you out thin? 
Absolutely. But it's worth every moment. Because as a parent, you're seeing a bigger picture. Now, that's not a perfect analogy. But as the people of God who are given imperishable seed, who are made up of an eternal life, the fear of missing out, of being self-centered today, because I don't want to miss out on some experience, so I'll just, be, I'll just you know, do what I want to do today. The fear of loving stretched out, or, or, or the, the, the temptation to not love stretched out, we don't have to worry about that because we are, in fact, eternal. This should be the love we have for one another because of the imperishable things God has done for us. In fact, our love for one another in this sense is, in fact, what God has said is the point of your sal- one of the points of your salvation, and it is, in fact, what God has set up to be proof to the world that Christ is Messiah and that you belong to him is our ability to love one another, especially perhaps when it's hard. When you and I join a church, and there's all different ways that people talk about that, but here's here's the reason why we talk about saying, I'm going to, quote, join a church. When we join a church, what we're doing is saying this. These people are an an expression of the larger universal church but I don't know people out there, so I can't, it's hard to love them because I don't know them. I, I, don't have, I don't have any way of practically expressing a love for someone who lives in, in Canada, generally. So how do I live this out? Well, I have a group of local people who are followers of Christ, and I commit myself to them, almost like you would in a marriage. When I join the church, I'm essentially taking a covenant. I'm making a covenant with God's people in this church, and I'm saying... Just as God has loved me, I will love you, even when it's hard. And the way we express that is by looking around the room and going, I'm going to love you. I'm committed to these folks, even on the days hard. See, what happens so much in our culture is this. Oh, I don't like that church because you know, they sang a song I didn't like. Someone looked at me the wrong way. Pastor didn't say hi to me on Sunday morning. I don't like the color of the carpet. I'm making some stuff up. I've heard most of those. So they go to the church down the street. How does that represent the gospel? In short, it doesn't. In fact, it preaches the exact opposite. This is why it's important for us to commit to one another. This is why we have a, quote, church role. Not because God said, create a computer file and put everybody's name on it, but so that we know who we're committed to. That's what it means to be part of a church. When we do that, we set ourselves up to be those who can love one another even on those days we're stretched thin to do it. So the world has an example of what God has done for us. This is one of the points of our salvation and of our sanctification. So this morning as simply as this. Can you say, since you've been saved, can you, point to a point, can you point to a moment in your life when you know you came to Christ? Are you, are you His this morning? And if so, has God, through your salvation, and through your being made holy, grown within you a love for His people?
a love for one another. So that in that love, you would demonstrate the gospel and the eternal life that comes through the work of Christ. If this morning you don't have that moment, I want to invite you to that. You might even say, I'm not sure I want the moment because some of the Christians I've seen don't demonstrate that. And you're right, some haven't. And there are some who claim the name of Christ who aren't really of His too. There's, there's, there's both categories. I have failed in that in many times in my life. But I'm begging you, let Him create within you this new life, an imperishable seed. And would you join with us in demonstrating a fervent, stretched out, heavenly love for one another that will demonstrate the character of God.